What do you think about when you hear this sound? Oh, here we go, hold on. Let's try it again. Did you know that's a, a tone you can download for your alarm, by the way? Why would anyone do that? I don't know. Uh, God created roosters to be this annoying nature's alarm clock that is just obnoxious. In fact, I tested it on our little girls this morning. Before I left the house, I went up into the room real quietly and right in their ears. And they shot up like, ah, what's going on? We have a rooster in our house. Uh, I, so I, some of you, when you hear that, you live on a farm. So you're like, that means it's time to get up and do chores. Uh, I am not, nor ever have been a farm boy. I grew up in a farming community in Colorado. And so I remember when I was younger, I would stay at some friend's house, and they had a rooster. And at 3 in the morning, I would hear, <laughs> and at my head shot off of the pillow like, what was that? 3 in the morning. Now, I am not a violent man. But at three in the morning, when you hear that sound, I wanted to strangle somebody, particularly a rooster. I mean, it is obnoxious. What, can you imagine, what, what did Peter hear when he heard that sound throughout the rest of his life? What if you heard a triggering sound that immediately made you think of your sin and shame? Did Peter hear the sound of colossal failure? Well, for two or three days, absolutely. Absolutely. But what did he hear when he heard that sound for the rest of his life? I think he heard not the sound of colossal failure, but the sound of inconceivable forgiveness. Because that's what God does. That's what the Lord does. He flips our failures into triumphs of his grace for his glory. So we are continuing our series in the Gospel of John. So turn, and, turn to the Gospel of John. We're in our series in the upper room, John 13 through 17. But we're taking a little excursus today. We're going to look at John 13, 36 through 38 next week. That's going to be kind of part one. I know we're doing this a little backwards, but bear with me. We're doing kind of part two, the restoration of Peter. But before we could talk about the restoration of Peter, we got to talk about the failure of Peter. So let me set the table for us. Here's the context of the Apostle Peter's denials of Jesus. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room the night before he's to die. And they go to the Garden of Gethsemane where he is betrayed, he's arrested, and all his disciples are scattered. And they arrest Jesus and they take him to the house of the high priest Caiaphas. So they're at this big palace of this big wig, the high priest. He's the leader of the Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. And there... In the middle of the night, Jesus is being tried. He's being judged before this kangaroo court, so to speak. And so John and Peter, his, his, his apostles, his disciples, decide to follow Jesus to see what's going to happen. Now, apparently, the apostle John had some friends in high places. Or at least he was known by Caiaphas and some of his people, it says. Because he goes, and there's probably a mob, probably a crowd of people outside the gate, you know, they're trying to figure out who's, what's going on with Jesus, and here's Johnny shows up, and I don't know if he flashes some ID or what, but he's with Peter, and he gets in, and as he goes in, he turns around, and he's like, wait, where did Peter go? And Peter is back at the gate, back at the doorkeeper, didn't make it past the bouncer, and 
one who was so brash, so bold in his denial of his denials, which we'll see next week, is now so cowardly, so fearful, he's scared to enter into the courtyard. So John goes to Peter and he vouches for him like, hey, he's with me, it's okay, it's cool. And as they're passing the servant girl who's the doorkeeper, she says, she looks at Peter kind of with a side glance, wait, 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 wait. Don't I recognize you from somewhere? I, I know you. Aren't you one of this man, Jesus' followers? Do you follow Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus the Galilean? You look familiar. Don't I recognize you? Now notice she is not accusing him of rebellion, accusing him of inciting a mob as many did with Jesus. She's not asking about his actions. She's asking about his associations with Jesus. And Peter, for the first time, denies it. In fact, he says, I don't understand, I don't even know what you mean. Uh, what do you even talk about? I don't even understand what you're asking. Now, I call that playing dumb. Peter's playing dumb. He gives a strong denial, you might say evasion. He's playing dumb, he refuses to identify himself with Jesus. So Peter enter, enters into this lower courtyard, so probably the palace had an upper courtyard, like a patio area with columns and open wall where you could see down below into the lower courtyard. And Jesus and the Sanhedrin are up in the upper courtyard, the elevated courtyard. Peter's down below. And there's some people there. They've started a charcoal fire. It's cold out, so Peter goes near the fire and he's warming himself. Now, who's around the fire? There are servants and officers of the Sanhedrin. They're probably Roman soldiers. Some of the very people who arrested Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane who saw Peter there are right there. Think about this. They're right there around the fire, and here's Peter like, I don't know any of you people, when they just saw him with Jesus. And so others recognize Peter, and they, a handful start accusing him of following Jesus. In fact, another servant to, says to those around him, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And a second time, Peter denies it. He says, I do, know, do not know the man. I'm not one of his disciples. So he goes from, I don't even know what you're talking about, to I don't even know that man. In fact, he does so with an oath, the text says. I promise I don't know that man. He doesn't even say the name of Jesus. He doesn't even say, I promise I don't know Jesus of Nazareth. He doesn't even have the gall to say the name of Jesus. I don't even know that man. So he went from strong denial to stronger denial. From evasion, now it's escalating. Overtly denying even knowledge of Jesus. He goes from misdirection to repudiation, from a lie to perjury. Luke 22, it says that after about an hour, Peter's there still at the fire warming himself and a crowd is starting to gather around him. More bystanders are glancing at Peter suspiciously, increasingly suspicious, like, no, 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 wait, we... We're pretty sure we know you. We're pretty sure we recognize you. You were with this Jesus. And so as they're gathering around him, some of them say, certainly you too are one of his disciples, for your accent betrays you. Aren't you a Galilean? Wasn't Jesus of Galilee? Aren't, weren't you with Jesus? In fact, specifically, one of the accusers, I believe it says in John, is a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he had a sword. I think he tried to take someone's head off. 
but he was a bad aim, and he took off their ear, and Jesus healed the ear. It's an incredible story, and a relative of that guy sees Jesus, or sees Peter, and says, wait, 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 didn't I see you with that man in the garden? And for the third time, Peter denies it. In fact, it says in the text, he invoked a curse upon himself. I do not know that man. I think he was yelling. I think he was using choice words. In fact, the word call down curses, the root word of that is anathematize. If you've ever heard the word anathema, you know, if someone sins, a grievous sin, sometimes you'll hear someone say, let him be anathema. That means let him be cut off. So it is as if he's asking God to punish him, to cut him off if he's lying. He's saying, may God send me to hell if I'm lying. I do not know that man. Strong denial, stronger denial, third time, strongest denial. So it crescendos into this climactic, vitriolic, visceral reaction. And at that moment, He hears, and Jesus, it says, turns around and he locks eyes with Peter. I forget in which gospel it says that, but he turns around and from the upper courtyard he looks. Can you imagine seeing the piercing gaze of Jesus who could just pierce into your heart and soul with a look and with great sorrow and disappointment? He looks at Peter and Peter is so Discouraged, he's so despondent. And the rooster crows, awakening Jesus, uh, Peter's memory of Jesus' prophecy of his denial, which we'll look at again next week in John 13, where Peter's like, no, 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 they'll all fail. I'll never fall away. I'll never deny you. And Jesus says, you're, you're going to deny me three times. So those memories flood into Peter's mind, and he leaves that place, and he weeps bitterly. Peter hits the lowest point of his entire life. He had failed the Lord who was everything to him. He had denied his Lord and Savior. See, denial is refusing to believe or submit to truth for a moment, a season, or a lifetime. And I'm willing to bet, in fact, I'm not willing to bet, I know we all have moments of denying Jesus with our words, with our actions, not claiming the identity of Jesus' follower by the things we say or the things we don't say and the things we do or the things we don't do. And right now, you are probably sitting there thinking about a failure in your life, something you've said, something you thought, something you have done. Man, if someone saw that failure, they would never think that you follow Jesus. In fact, they would think that you deny Jesus. But here's the thing, church, listen. We all fail Jesus. Now, I didn't expect any amens in that point, because that that stings, doesn't it? But it's true. We all fail Jesus. Peter had failed Jesus. He denied Jesus. And so what truth is Peter denying about Jesus? Well, he's denying Jesus' identity. He's denying Jesus' identity as the Son of God. He's denying his association with Jesus. He's denying his worshipful allegiance to Jesus. So he goes so quickly from affirming the Lordship of Christ to denying it completely. But again, isn't this what we do? I love Jesus. Oh, I worship Jesus. And we love him on Sundays. And then during the week, 
we live or speak in such a way that doesn't align with the lordship of Christ in our lives. Psychologists call it cognitive dissonance, which is a big fancy word. You don't need to know that. Cognitive dissonance, but it's essentially this. You think one way and you act another way. So you're your core set of beliefs, your values, you think this way, but for whatever reason, you don't act according to those values, so it causes this internal, agonizing tension within. And it honestly causes all kinds of mental health issues. Cognitive dissonance. That's what's going on right here. That's what we do, if we're honest, when we're hypocritical. All four Gospels speak to Peter's denial extensively. And not all four Gospels chronicle every event and every teaching of Jesus. So why this one? I think it's because it shows our failure. We're human, and it shows our need for grace and restoration, and now you can say amen. So turn to John chapter 21. We're actually not in 13 today. Turn to John chapter 21, and let me give you the context. Jesus had just died on the cross. He was buried for three days. He rose from the dead to conquer death, rose to life, and he's appearing before his disciples several times. And in this instance, in John 21, seven of his disciples are fishing in the Sea of Galilee, the very spot where Jesus first met them, doing the exact same thing they were doing when Jesus first met them. And he's near the shore, and he performs this familiar incredible miracle where they can't catch anything. He says, hey, throw the net on the other side, just like he did three years earlier. And they do, and I believe they catch, what's it say, 153 fish, something like that, which I'm not a fisherman. Is that a lot? I don't know. Anybody, any, any of you fish? You ever caught 153 fish? No. <laughs> okay, I thought that was pretty rare. So Jesus, this is a miracle. And so they, they catch all these fish and one of the disciples, I think it's John, says, it's the Lord. Now, Peter, at this moment, yes, thank you. So Peter, at this moment, doesn't cower under the fishing nets like, oh, it's Jesus. I failed him. Oh, hide me. Doesn't hide in the bottom of the boat. You know what he does? Oh, good old impetuous Peter. He jumps out of the boat just like he did when he saw Jesus walk on water. And he runs to Jesus. Well, he's not walking on water this time, so he swims to Jesus. But he goes to Jesus. He moves closer to Jesus in his failure. He approaches Jesus in his failure. He pursues Jesus. And that's the difference, friends, between Judas and Peter. So Jesus is having breakfast with his disciples on the beach. He's got a little fire going. He's cooking up the fish, which I, I hate fish. So this sounds like a disgusting breakfast to me, but I don't know, if you like fish, maybe this sounds good. I don't know. But he's having breakfast with his disciples by a charcoal fire. You know, a few days earlier, Peter was also by a charcoal fire when he denied Jesus. Now he's with Jesus by a charcoal fire also early in the morning. So what's racing through his thoughts? John chapter 21. I'm going to have you guys stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus has this sidebar convo with Peter. I mean, you have all these disciples there, but it's like focus in on just Jesus and Peter. They're having this conversation. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
Well, then feed my lambs, Jesus said. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then tend my sheep. Simon, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, then feed my sheep. For truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, you used to walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you. Another will carry you where you do not want to go. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Okay, you guys can be seated. Jesus calls him Simon, son of John. Though in Matthew 16, he renamed him Peter. So let's look at Matthew 16. Look at the screen up here. Jesus is asking, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Remember, that's a reference, third-person reference for Jesus. Who do people say that I am? Well, you're like one of the prophets. Maybe you're like Elijah. And then Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And good old Peter, he says, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, or John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Simon gives this incredible declaration of Jesus' identity. And then Jesus states that the truth of that declaration is the rock of the church. Peter, listen to me, some of you may have grown up Catholic, Peter is not the rock of the church. You think, do you think Jesus, when he says the gates of hell will not prevail against it, he's talking about Peter? He's talking about the truth of the gospel. The gates of hell will not prevail against that truth, that Jesus is the son of the living God, the Messiah on high. That's the rock of the church. That's the foundation, and that will never be moved. But as a play on words, Jesus renames Simon as Peter. Because Peter, in the Greek, it's petros. It sounds like rock. It's where we get our word petroleum, petrol fuel, you know, fuel from fossil fuels, from rocks. It's a play on words. So Simon, on his own, will always be Simon. But his name was changed to reflect the truth he declared. It was a reminder to stand that he stood on the truth of Jesus. That Jesus is the rock. And if you stand on me, you will be the rock. You will be rock solid. But now, in this scene, he's Simon. Simon is the one who denied Jesus. He denied the one who is truth. He denied the one who is the rock. He disavowed himself as one tied to the rock of Jesus, he's Simon. So Jesus doesn't call him Peter. He calls him Simon, which is significant. Jesus addresses him as he is, not as he should be, not as Peter wants to be. Jesus meets him right where he is. Do you see that? Right, addresses him in his failure as he is, meets him where he is, and folks, Jesus meets us where we are. Praise God. Even in our failures, especially in our failures. I could just imagine Peter like, I'm not worthy to be called Peter. And Jesus is like, I know. Simon, I know. And then listen to what happens next. So Jesus and Peter, they're having this public sidebar convo. 
And Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me? Do you have devotion, worship, worship, allegiance to me above everything else? It calls to mind the first and foremost commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, mind, strength. Love God with everything you are. Jesus is saying, do you love me like that? In fact, in Jesus' three questions here, this is the only one that uses a comparison. Do you love me more than these? More than what? Is he saying, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Maybe. In fact, that's possible. Maybe Jesus is using irony. Because remember, as well, you'll see it next week, Peter implicitly states that I love Jesus, I love you more than anyone else does. Though all fall away, I will never fail you. I, oh, I will never deny you. I love you more than anyone could possibly love you. That's kind of what Jesus is, uh, Peter is saying about Jesus. Even if all fall away, I will not. So maybe, but Jesus typically did not encourage comparison. Is Jesus saying, do you love me more than fishing? Maybe. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that after Peter failed Jesus, after he denied Jesus, he went right back to what he used to do, right back to his old life. And don't we do that all the time? We fail Jesus, we go back to our old ways, back to our old life. So is that what Jesus is asking? Maybe. Or is he asking, do you love me more than you love the disciples? Do you love me more than you love any, anyone else? Do you love me as you should more than anything else in this life? I think that's what Jesus is asking. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. I can't imagine. I, in fact, I wonder if this was said quietly. Now, you, we've all sinned, right? There's a lot of shame that comes with sin. And so, you know, when you sin, you, maybe, he's, maybe he's sheepless, sheepish. He's just, he can't even look at Jesus because the last time he looked at Jesus and locked eyes with him is when he right after denied him. Maybe he can't even lift up his head. Maybe he's just quiet. Yes, yes, Lord, you you know, you know that I love you. Maybe he's embarrassed. It's interesting that Simon Peter doesn't say, yes, Lord, you know that I love you more than these. He just says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So he's not making these brash assertions anymore. He is broken. And brokenness is doing the work it needs to do of humbling him. And his response reaffirms his belief in Jesus' identity because he says, yes, what? Starts with L. Ends with Ord. Come on. <laughs> Lord. He says, yes, Lord. Yes, Master. Yes, Rabbi. Yes, the one that I follow. You have my allegiance. He is reaffirming. He's re-identifying himself with Jesus. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's trying to evoke that from him. So Jesus says, okay then, feed my lambs. Now who do lambs or sheep refer to in these three questions? In John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, and my sheep know me, and I know them. Notice, he doesn't say, feed your sheep. He doesn't say, feed the sheep. What's he say? Feed my sheep. They're mine. They belong to me. They're my flock. They're my church. They're my body. We'll see this in John 14. If you love me, you will obey my commands. Now, what was Jesus' new command that we looked at last week? His new command is what? It's really an old command, but in a new way. Love one another as I, Jesus, have loved you, that you also love 
one another. He's saying, if you love me, you love the ones I care about, those who belong to me. So the evidence of your love for me, he's saying, is in how you treat and love one another. It's how you deeply care for others, your relational, relational investment in others. Makes me think of Matthew 25. Jesus gives the parable of the sheep and the goats. And in that parable, Jesus says, whatever you do for the least of these, the least of these brothers or sisters, the least of those who follow Jesus, whatever you do for them, you do for me. So if you love them, it's like you love me. If you serve them, it's like you serve me. That's what he's saying here. And so a second time, Jesus asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And a second time, Peter replies, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Pretty strong declaration of his love the first time. This is a stronger declaration of his love, his devotion, his belief in Jesus' identity. I think perhaps he said it even louder, even more forcefully. Jesus then says, then tend my sheep. So he goes from feed my lambs to shepherd my sheep. But it's the same idea. Show love for me by how you love and care for others. A third time, Jesus asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me? You know, this time in the Greek, Jesus uses a different, you know, the, the New Testament was written in Greek originally. And in the first two times, Jesus uses the word agape for do you love me. This time, it says, do you phileo me? Now, most commentaries, most scholars don't make much of the word change. It's a stylistic choice by John here. In fact, in Aramaic, just like in English, we have how many words for love? One, love. <laughs> There's a trick question. So Jesus is saying over and over, do you love me? These verbs are interchangeable, but there's an inherent crescendo. Just as Peter's denials escalated, Jesus' affirmations escalate. So the first time he says, do you love me more than these? The second time he insinuates do you even love me some amount? And this third time packs a punch because Jesus' reiterating, reverberating question cuts Peter to the core and infers, Simon, son of John, do you even love me at all? R.C. Sproul, who uh, has passed on a few years ago, was a pastor and theologian. And he was on a Q&A panel. And so he's on stage with several others and Yes, someone, someone from the audience asked, how do I know if I'm saved? And another guy in the panel says, well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And everyone clapped and it sounded nice. And R.C. Sproul said, let's expand on that a little bit. Because how do you know you believe in Jesus? And so he said, throughout his ministry, he had people ask that. How do I know that I'm saved? And so he would say, okay, do you love Jesus perfectly? Well, who can love Jesus perfectly? And so most of them would say, well, no, we don't love Jesus perfectly. How can anyone love Jesus perfectly? So exactly, we can't love Jesus perfectly. So then let me ask you this. Do you love Jesus as much as you should? Now, if they answered the first question, no, how do they have to answer the second question? No, because we should love Jesus perfectly. We should love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so, if they said no to the first thing, they'd have to say no to the second thing. And so then he would say the third time, well then, do you even love Jesus 
at all. And here's where our theology comes home to roost. Because how can that be if you say yes to that? When Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, we cannot, dead people cannot love anything. So how can we love God? The natural man, 1 Corinthians, does not seek spiritual things. So how can anyone love God at all unless God is working in their heart? This is what Jesus is doing here. He's doing the same kind of thing. Jesus is asking Peter, do you love me at all? And we know this third time punched Simon Peter in the gut because of his response. He's deeply grieved by being forced to remember his failure in front of the one before him who he failed. And Peter uses two different words for no here. There's two words. There's oidao, which means cognitive knowledge, like you know facts about someone or something. And then there's gnosko. That's like to deeply, intimately, personally, experientially know someone. So it's know about someone, know someone. And Peter is saying, Lord, you know Odao, everything. You know every fact about everything. You know cognitively everything. You know, you know me. You, Gnosko, you know that I love you. You know my heart. You know me more than anyone knows me. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? This is so brilliant. He purposefully provokes to evoke a particular response from Peter. Who is the only one who knows everything there is to know? Come on now, who is the only one who knows everything there is to know? God! So he's trying to get Peter to reassert his faith that he is God. And Peter, once again, reaffirms his Matthew 16 statement that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of the living God. Jesus is bringing him back to that original confession of him. Isn't that good? And one final time. Jesus says, well, then feed my sheep. Jesus is reminding Peter that he's calling him not to fishing, at least maybe fishers of men, but to shepherding. You know the word pastor? Does anyone know what the word pastor means? Shepherd. I kind of gave that away. But pastor means shepherd. And this must have left an indelible impression on Peter. Because if you look at 1 Peter 5, check this out. 1 Peter 5. Peter writes later on, So I exhort the elders, the pastors among you, as a fellow pastor, elder, and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock. Hmm. Where did he hear that? From Jesus, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Shepherd them well. Care about them. So then we get to verse 18. And as we'll see next week in John 13, Jesus gives a prophecy that Peter would cowardly deny him three times in the face of persecution. But now in verse 18, Jesus gives another prophecy. Not that Peter would deny Jesus at the end of his life, but that he would stand true to Jesus. He would die for his unwavering confession of Jesus because he loves Jesus. So Jesus is saying, your love for me will be tested. You will die as a martyr later in your life if you continue to stand on the rock of the confession of who I am. 
my identity as the one who came to seek and save the lost and restore and reconcile to the Father. If you think, if you believe I'm the, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, you'll die for that faith. And sure enough, according to legend, according to tradition, Peter was crucified for his faith in Jesus. And not just right side up, but he asked them, please don't do it, right side up. I'm not worthy to die as my Lord did. Crucify me upside down. And so he did. He didn't deny Jesus at the end. He stood for Jesus. And so once again, he's not Simon, he's Peter. He's the one who stood on the rock. So do you understand how beautiful this verse is, verse 18? Jesus doesn't say, well, sorry, you denied me. You failed me. You rejected me in a moment of weakness, in a moment of fear. You were a scaredy cat. You were a coward. Oh, you, are, you are damaged goods. You're just no good to me now. You are broken. I, I only use perfect people. No! Look at what he says. Jesus is telling Peter that he still belongs to him and that he will be used by him for his kingdom all the way up and through his very death to glorify God. By grace in Jesus, oh, this is so good, church. By grace in Jesus, failure is never final. Come on now, isn't that good? That's why Christianity is so good. We all fail, but by grace in Jesus, failure is never final. Donald Guthrie says it this way, the fact that Peter was clearly forgiven by Jesus and given new responsibilities amounting to discipleship, apostleship, Despite his total denial of his Lord, he can give genuine hope to Christians today who feel that they have denied Jesus and that it's unforgivable. He calls only for our repentance and our love. And some of you are thinking about the failures in your life. And I have messed up. Or worse yet, I am messed up. I'm just too broken. I have failed Jesus so badly. I've failed Jesus over and over and over. Jesus could never, Jesus would never use me. Really? Really? How does your failure compare to Peter's? Because it certainly can't be worse. And if he can restore Peter, friends, listen to me, he can restore you. I've had people say, I, how do I measure up to Jesus? I just feel like I'm unworthy of Jesus. You're right. You are unworthy and you're right. You will never measure up because Jesus measured up for us. In his death on the cross, he paid the debt. He did what was necessary, not what we do. So it's all about what he did. We never measure up. And, and so that means that you are exactly, exactly the person Jesus wants to use. In all your brokenness, in all your failure, yes, we are broken. Yes, we all fail. But God forgives and uses broken people through Jesus. And so then we get to verse 19. Oh, this is glorious. After saying all this, Jesus says two simple words that Peter hadn't heard in three years. Words that were directed toward him. He hadn't heard since the first time he met Jesus, also while he was fishing, also on the Sea of Galilee, and those two words are, follow me. <laughs> That's the beauty of full circle reinstatement in Christ. Peter is fully forgiven. And Jesus is reestablishing his call on Peter's life to follow him, to be a spiritual shepherd. So Peter's brash assertions were in front of the other disciples. Peter's denials were very public. And now, not only does Jesus restore Peter in public, he recommissions him in public. He's saying, listen, I am the good shepherd of my sheep. 
And now I'm transferring that responsibility onto you and onto others like you. Shepherd them well. Care for them well. Love them. Love me by loving them. Three denials, three declarations, three responses, one restoration. It's as if Jesus is saying, you have denied me three times. I've reaffirmed you three times. You rejected my identity. I am reinstating yours. You denied being associated with me. I'm restoring you back to where you were. You belong to me. You are forgiven. Now get up and follow me. Get up and follow me. He's forgiven. He's restored. The forgiveness of Jesus is so, ah, it's so scandalous. It's so shocking. And the fact is, we will never measure up to be worthy of Jesus, and that is what's so amazing about his grace. God always restores repentant people. He always forgives repentant people. I've read through the Bible cover to cover several times, and I've never once, Old Testament and New Testament, ever found an example where someone repented of their sin and God said, ah, no, that wasn't good enough, sorry. Maybe next time. Try a little harder on that repentance. No, God always forgives repentant people, always. What a glorious display of his grace. Now, did Peter actually ask for forgiveness? We don't know. You know what? The text actually doesn't say. But he certainly seems contrite. He, his thinking has changed from brash to broken. He's been humbled. And before Jesus can be followed, the sin in our lives must be addressed. Peter knew that he had sinned against the Lord. So what makes repentance repentance? Is it just sorrowful, being filled with tears? Like what makes repentance repentance? Well, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. Everyone say metanoia. metanoia. That was good. You guys learned a Greek word. That's awesome. Metanoia literally means after mind. It's a changing of your mindset, a changing of the way you think, a changing of the, just the framework. Repentance is a change in the way you think about something, usually caused by sorrow and brokenness. So repentance is a surrender. It's a death to self. And unlike Judas, Peter realized he needed grace, and so he went to Jesus. In 2 Corinthians 7, it talks about the different kinds of sorrow. There's godly sorrow. And worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. So worldly sorrow is remorse. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Worldly sorrow, it's sorrowful over consequences. It's grieved as long as the pressure points are applied. But once that pain is off, you go back to the way things were. You're, you're grieved over the consequences. You don't want the pain. That's worldly sorrow, which does not seek Jesus. It actually denies Jesus. But godly sorrow is broken over your sins because of the disruption in closeness, in intimacy with Jesus. And godly sorrow, when you have godly sorrow, with great zeal, you long to be near Jesus, to walk with him as you once did previously. That's godly sorrow, which seeks to be with Jesus. So repentance is a return to Jesus as your first love. That's why Jesus asks what he does. Jesus asks Peter, do you love me more than fill in the blank? Whatever is in your life that has a whole lot of your love, do you love Jesus more than that? See, that's repentance. Jesus restores the repentant.
If we can dim the lights, the band's going to come up. We're going to, guess what? We're going to have a prayer of, what do you think? Repentance. You know, how often should we repent? How about daily? You know, Luke 9.23, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. So that death to self. Surrender. Take up his cross. How often? Daily and follow me. The same words he gave to Peter, he gives to us now. Follow me. Death to self. Surrender. So if repentance is constant surrender and death to self, we need to die daily. Church family, let's repent in hope, in joy, in grace, because Jesus stands readily accessible to forgive and restore.